Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. At the end of the service, I'm going to tell you just about some ways that you can connect and find out more about Res Church, but we're just honored that you're here. Um, We are studying through the book of Romans, and so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. We're going to finish Romans 9 today. Um, By the way, if I didn't get to meet you, my name's Bradley. I'm one of the pastors, um, and I get the privilege of teaching this morning, and so um, grab your Bibles. Let's dig in. Romans chapter 9. I'm going to pick up in verse 22, where we left off last week, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, and I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Romans chapter 9, verse 22. Paul writes and says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath... And to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people and her who was not beloved. I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works." They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good. Y'all did better than last week. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the bread of life, for the truth that makes us free. We give thanks for the way in which your word at times offends our minds. It jostles the soul. In all of this, Lord, you are making yourself known and we receive with thanks by faith the revelation of yourself to your people And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come. As we have sung, we prayed in song, I pray now, Lord, as we 
begin our time in your word that you, Holy Spirit, would teach us, that you would illuminate the word of God to us, that our eyes and ears would be open and that our hearts would be receptive to you, and that, Lord, you would strengthen us in the faith for your glory and the spread of your fame. It's in your name I pray. Everyone said amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, I'm going to do a one-sentence review, okay? So if you haven't been with us, you're, you're kind of jumping in the middle um, or really at the end of a chapter where we have wrestled with some really big things in Romans chapter 9. Uh, but here's the point that we came to last week. God is writing a story. God is writing a story. Our sovereign God is writing a story, and that story is about his glory. And what we discovered last week is that though this story that God is writing includes good and bad, there are things in God's story that are pleasurable and wonderful and full of joy, and there are things in God's story that at times can be painful can be difficult to understand. We go through things in this life. All of us would say this is true, Christian or not. We go through things in this life that are hard, painful. And those of us who are in Christ, we witness those who reject the gospel, reject the faith and trust that we have in Christ. And we find ourselves a lot of times asking God, why? But here's what we know. God is writing a story, and it's a good story because it's about his glory, right? That's where we got to last week. That's all the review I can do today. So if you missed any of the last, I don't know, how, how long we've been in this chapter, a month. If you missed any of the last months of messages, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. Let me ask you a question. When, when you encounter people that have serious issues in terms of reconciling a good, loving, and merciful God with all of the pain and sorrow that remains in this life, how do you answer that question? When you find people that struggle to get their minds around a God that the Bible declares is love, not just that he loves, but he is love, and yet Orthodox Christianity teaches that there are going to be billions of people who their eternal experience will not be in heaven enjoying the presence of God forever, but will be in hell experiencing the wrath and judgment of God forever, all because they don't believe. How do you answer those questions? Good God, loving God, merciful God, forgiving God, gracious God, and yet, if he is all-powerful, if he is who he says he is, who his word reveals him to be, why does cancer remain? Why does sorrow remain? And why, at the end of it all, are some going to experience his wrath and judgment forever? How do you answer that question? One of the things that's really sad to me right now, in, at this point in my life, Mary and I have a handful of friends who have abandoned Orthodox Christianity for those reasons. They cannot get their heads around Eternal punishment. They cannot get their heads around how that fits into God's story. They cannot get their heads around why a good God would allow all of the things that are so painful and hard and tragic in this life to happen. 
if that is indeed what's happening, is that God's just kind of allowing it to happen. He's got the power to stop it, but he doesn't. If that's true, how could we trust that God is good? And we've got friends of ours that have abandoned the faith because of such notions. In fact, just this week, I think, within the past week or so, a pretty well-known worship artist, Christian musician, and songwriter who has spent the bulk of his career with Hillsong. Many of you know Hillsong. We're actually going to sing a song that this guy had a part in writing at the end of the service today. His name is Marty, and just recently he has posted on social media that he no longer identifies himself as a Christian. And I want to read you a part of what he wrote and posted. He said, he said in his, in his you know, post that he's struggling with many of the parts of his belief system that seem so inco- incoherent and with common human morality. And then he writes and says, if most of humankind had a choice, would we not rid the world of the scourge of cancer or sickness or disease? Why doesn't God do such a thing? Of course, there is an answer to this question, but the majority of a typical Christian's life is not spent considering these things. Questions such as these remain in the too hard basket. And then he goes on to talk about how he just can't get his head around billions of people spending eternity in hell simply because they don't believe. Do we have answers to these questions? Do we ever think about it? Or do we just want to kind of go through the motions, check the church box, give a little bit of money, make sure that we're good to go, and, and, and at the end of it all, we've got some sort of eternal assurance? Or are we, are we people who want to know and understand the truth about this God who is writing a story about his glory? Let me point out a couple of things that I believe we know, we should know, okay? A couple of basic truths, one of which I've already mentioned, um, that I think we could all agree on, at least most of us in this room. We're not universalists. And by that I mean we do not believe that in the end every human being that has ever or will ever lived will experience eternity in heaven with Jesus forever. Some will be saved and some will not. Okay? So we agree on that. Here's what we also know. God is sovereign. He's all-knowing, and he's all-powerful. One of my favorite verses is in Isaiah where it says, God is the God who declares the end from the beginning. I talk about it a lot. God doesn't start till he's finished. God's not surprised. He's never caught off guard. He never says, oh, I didn't see that coming. God doesn't react. He just acts. With God, it's only plan A. There's no plan B or C, amen? All right, so that's what we know. We're not universalists, and we know God is sovereign. So when Paul talks about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and vessels of mercy prepared for glory, what is he telling us about God? What kind of conclusions are we to come to about this God who is sovereign and is good? And send his son Jesus to die for sins. What is he telling us about God? Let's go back and read it again. Verse 22. We got there a little bit last week, but we're going to dig in a little bit deeper. 
What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Now, let's ask a few questions about that. What is Paul telling us about the nature of God? What's God doing in those verses? Okay? I, I see two things. Number one, God desires, everybody say desires. He desires or he wills or he is willing to show his wrath and make known his power. Nobody forces God to do anything. All right? Just take a little simple logic. All-knowing and all-powerful God is never constrained or forced to show his wrath or to show mercy. No one holds power or sway over God. That's one of the things that Paul's revealed to us in chapter 9 is that God is completely free. He is sovereign. In order that his purpose of election might continue, Paul says, he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. So God is free. He's not constrained. He's not bound. He shows his wrath and he makes known his power. Why? Because he wills to. That's just a simple reading of the text, right? Let me just read it again. What if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power? This is, he does because he wills to show his wrath and make known his power. Why? I think the answer is in verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory. So why does God will to make his wrath known and his power known? The answer is in order to make known the riches of his glory. So there must be some connection between the demonstration of God's wrath and making known the riches of his glory. Do you see that? We haven't fully answered the question, but that's just a simple take on the nature of God. When we consider the sovereignty of God, here's where a lot of people get hung up. What does God cause definitively, decisively? And what does God allow passively or indirectly? You ever, you ever thought about that? How many of you parents have had the privilege of teaching your young children how to ride a bike? Raise your hand. Okay, one of the most frustrating experiences ever, right? <laughs> so my children, as they grew up and it came time to teach them how to ride a bike, when they got big enough, at some point I took the training wheels off. I could have left them on, right? I could have left them on. But at some point I took the training wheels off they're never going to learn the joy of riding a bike fully with training wheels. So when I took the training wheels off, I do what all the parents do, right? I grab onto the back of the seat and I get a great cardio workout running alongside my child. <laughs> I'm huffing and puffing and sweating and, you know, just trying to encourage them while they're screaming and crying, don't let go, daddy, don't let go, daddy, right? But at some point, what do I have to do? And what do I know is going to happen? They're going to fall. And they're going to skin their knee. 
They're going to hurt their elbow. It's going to scare them when daddy lets go. It doesn't, it doesn't help me to describe that situation by saying that I caused their fall, their fear, or their skint knees. But it also doesn't help me to say that I just simply allowed their fall, their fear, or their skint knees. The truth is I intended it. I intend it because I want them to know the joy of riding their bike. When I think about the sovereignty of God, I do not get hung up. I'm just going to tell you where I've landed on this. I do not get hung up on what God is causing or what he allows. I do not spend any mental energy on, did God cause this directly or decisively? Like if I would have grabbed my child on his or her bike and thrown them to the ground just so they could feel what it's like to skin their knee? I don't get hung up on whether God's causing or allowing. Here's what I think the Bible teaches me. Everything that is, is so because God intends it. He intends it. God is intentional. He's not passive. And he's not evil. He is good, but he is intentional. And he's writing a story, and the story's about his glory. And sometimes the story includes things that's hard for us to understand. Remember the story of Job? <laughs> Everybody just goes, oh. I don't like that story. I mean, even though he got a new family in the end and everything was restored, can't you imagine Job with pictures of the children he lost on his mantle? It's painful. And it doesn't help me to read that story and just go, well, God just allowed Satan to wreak havoc. On Job. No, everything that happened in Job's life happened as God intended it. Satan was on a very short leash. Because God is sovereign. So, what kind of world, listen, what kind of world does God intend? If God is intentional, if He's sovereign, if He's writing a story, and there are some things in the story that we go, yes. And there are others we go, really? What kind of world does God intend? This is very important. God intends a world where grace and mercy and redemption are necessary. Think about that. Please don't fly past that. God intends a world where grace and mercy and redemption are necessary in order to make known the riches of his glory. Without sin and death and evil, there would be no need. There would be no point for grace, for mercy, for redemption, for forgiveness. And if we try to dumb down the sovereignty of God because we can't stomach that, you know what we're left with? We're left with a world that includes pointless, random, meaningless, and fruitless suffering. 
If we can't stomach that, if we try to dumb down the sovereignty of God because we can't reconcile that God intends a world where we need him, where we need his grace, where we need his forgiveness, we need his love, we need his power, and he does all of that to make known the riches of his glory. If we can't stomach that, we negate the promises of God to us that he's working triumph in every tragedy. Triumph in every tragedy. That, Listen, do you believe that God is ruling over the sin visited on every Christian martyr? It, it, it's, that causes us to pause, doesn't it? There's a verse in Revelation where the martyrs are gathered around the throne and they cry out to God and they say, God, how long before you will avenge the injustice visited on us? And John said, I, I saw that they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their brothers had been completed. Whoa. God's ruling. Was God ruling over the death of Stephen when he stood before the Sanhedrin and declared the gospel of Jesus Christ and they picked up stones and they stoned him and he lifted up his head and the veil was peeled back just like it was for Isaiah and he said, I saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Who's ruling over that moment? Who's in charge? God's kingdom has come near to us, and one day it will come in its fullness. And when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and you know what we will celebrate forever? We will celebrate the glory of God, the riches of the glory of God revealed in both his mercy and grace and in his judgment and wrath. The glory of God will be celebrated. I think the words of Jonathan Edwards are helpful here. Let me just read you a quote. Talking about the kind of world that God intends, he says, thus it is necessary that God's awful majesty, his authority, his dreadful greatness, justice, and holiness should be manifested. But this could not be unless sin and punishment had been decreed so that the shining forth of God's glory would be very imperfect, both because these parts of divine glory would not shine forth as the others do, but also, and also the glory of his goodness, love, and holiness would be faint without them. Nay, they could be scarcely shine forth at all. The wrath of God and the punishment of sin is part of God's intention to shine forth the total picture of his glory. His glory includes his righteous judgment of sin and his holiness, and it includes his goodness, his mercy, and his love. God's not intention when it comes to his justness, his righteousness, and his love and his mercy all to make known the riches of his glory. I know that doesn't answer every question. I know that's hard. 
But God intends a world where the riches of his glory are made known both in his mercy and in his judgment. So what does Paul mean then when he talks about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What's the nature of God's dealing with them? That God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Remember back in in verse 17, I think it was, he mentions Pharaoh when he's talking about this. And so I think we're to conclude that Pharaoh, whatever this means, was included in what Paul calls the vessels of wrath. That God says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up. To make known my power and to make my name great. For this purpose I've raised you up. So what might it have looked like for God to endure Pharaoh, if he's a vessel of wrath, with much patience? What would that look like? Look with me at Exodus chapter 10. This is fascinating. Exodus chapter 10, verse 16. Then Pharaoh, this is in the middle of the plagues being visited on Egypt. Moses has shown up, said, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said no. The Bible said over and over again by this point that God's been hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so this is about plague number eight out of ten. Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, Watch this. I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord, and that's Yahweh. Pharaoh is saying Yahweh. Plead with Yahweh, your God, only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh, and Moses did, and pleaded with the Lord. And watch what the Lord does. And the Lord turned the wind into a strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea, and not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. Now stop right there. Pharaoh, at least for a moment, realizes he's dealing with a God much more powerful than he. And what does he say? I have sinned. I've sinned against Yahweh, your God. Forgive my sin and plead with the Lord to remove this death from me. And Moses goes out and does that very thing. He pleads with God and God relents, removes all the locusts. Again, this is plague number eight out of ten. When when is Israel going to leave Egypt? After plague number ten, right? Not eight, ten. Moses pleads, God removes the locusts, he relents, And if here's what's absolutely true. If Pharaoh would have continued down that road of repentance and humility before God, he would have not been destroyed. But then verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. Two things are happening there. Number one, God is sovereignly hardening Pharaoh's heart. Israel is going to leave Egypt exactly when God intends them to. Not a minute before and not a minute sooner. Pharaoh's not in control here. God is. God is sovereign. But here's the other thing that's happening. Notice that the scripture says, Pharaoh did not let the people go. Pharaoh didn't let him go. Yes, God hardened his heart, but Pharaoh didn't let him go. Pharaoh's responsible. 
God is sovereign and Pharaoh is responsible. And we look at that and we go, but that doesn't make sense. Is there injustice on God's part? Why does he find fault? Who can resist his will? These are all the questions that have come up in chapter 9, right? To which Paul would say, does not the potter have absolute right over the clay? And what if God, listen, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That phrase means fitted for destruction. It means ripe, ready. Do you know what's true? When the final judgment of God comes, there will be no legitimate objections raised. Because the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, that means that yes, the vessel was formed, was formed with the end in mind, but it also in some way makes room for the vessel having a hand in its end. God is sovereign and man is responsible. God is sovereign and Pharaoh is responsible. God endured with much patience. Pharaoh cried for repentance and God relented, but then God hardened his heart because God's writing a story and the story's about his glory and his people are gonna come out of slavery exactly when he intends them to. I know that's hard. I, I thought about this verse in, in 1 Thessalonians where Paul, Paul is talking about the, the Jews that have persecuted him. They have reviled him. They have opposed him. They, they, are, they are the Jews that Paul says killed Jesus and the prophets and displease God and oppose all of mankind. And when you get to chapter 2, verse 16, and Paul says this of those Jews, he says, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, 1 Thessalonians 2, 16, that they might be saved. And then watch this. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. I think that's what happened for Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a vessel of wrath fitted for destruction, and he filled up the measure of his sinfulness when he refused to obey the command to let God's people go. God was making known the riches of his glory in the display of his wrath and power against Pharaoh. And all of this, all of this for the vessels of mercy. Verse 22 again. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jew, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, all of this display of wrath and power is for the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. That's the purpose behind it all, is that his glory would be made known to us. Who's the us in verse 24? It's those whom God has called. 
He's called to himself, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul is summing it up now. This is something he's been pointing to this whole letter that true Israel, true Israel, the people of God, the children of God, the children of the promise are not those who just descended from a certain line. And they're not those who got a hold of a law and tried to keep it. They're the people whom God has called and has done something, listen, has done something in their heart. I can't change my heart. And all of you who are in Christ here this morning would say, that's true. I know I can't do the transformative work that must be done in here by what I do out here. And Paul spoke to this all the way back in chapter 2, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Could that be any more plain? That my heart gets circumcised or set apart to God not by my keeping of the letter, but by the Spirit. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, we talk about this a lot. Jesus, I know you're a man sent from God because nobody could do the things that you're doing. And Jesus says, let me stop you right there, Nicodemus. Unless you're born again, you won't even see the kingdom. And Nicodemus goes, what? I mean... I can't enter into my mother's womb a second time. To which Jesus basically responds, you're right. You can't do it, Nicodemus. That which is born of water is flesh. But that which is born of the chapter 9, verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Seems like there's a verse in our Bibles that says, God is forming a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And that new nation is people that God has called to himself. And so, Paul, can you back that up? He's, he's like, yeah, I can back that up. So he, verse 25, chapter 9, Paul's going to back this up from Scripture. Verse 25, as indeed he says to Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. Do you see that over and over again? Call, 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 call. This is Paul's evidence that God is calling Gentiles into the promise. And we ought to shout amen, because guess what we are? You're included You're included in the promise, not because you were born in the United States. 
And some of you in this room may have, you know, Jewish heritage. I don't know, somewhere down your line, but it has nothing to do with where you were born. It has everything to do with the fact that God called you to himself and made you a child of the promise. It's so interesting to me when, when, when I talk with believers about their salvation, the words that we use, the words that we use to describe it, we always tend to say, you know, in some way or another, God found me. He called me. I got invited to church by some friend, and I didn't want to go, but there was a girl there. And as the pastor spoke, my heart melted. I grew up in church, and I'd heard the message all my life, and my heart was hard towards it. But then God connected me with someone, and they began to share Christ with me. And all of a sudden, it made sense. Why is that? Is it not because God calls us? Some of you are familiar with, he's a pretty well-known pastor, Matt Chandler. And I love to hear him talk about how he was saved. I think he grew up in church, but I'm not really sure. But I just know that he was really resistant to Christianity and the Bible. And he, he had no interest in it, but he was playing football in high school. And his family moved to a new town, and, and he signed up for the football team, and he was in the locker room, and there was the best player on the team, the biggest dude on the team, who was everybody was sort of afraid of him. And he walks into the locker room one day, and he's like, hey, Matt, I'm glad you're here, glad you're on the team. I need to tell you about Jesus. When do you want to do that? And Matt said it was like, you know, it's going to happen. It's like now or later, what, you, what, what do you prefer? Isn't Jesus the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes and finds the one? Even thus, we were not his people. Just get your head around that. We were not his people. In terms of redemptive history, we were not his people. And he called us and said, you're going to be sons of the living God. Praise his name. And then concerning the Jews, verse 27, as Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In other words, just based on national descent alone, the fate of Israel was the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. Wiped out. Destroyed. They had no claim to God based on their national heritage. And yet, Paul says, Isaiah declares, some of them will be saved. I'll I'll give you a little hint because I know a lot of Christians wonder about, okay, what about national Israel? I don't think God's done with national Israel. We're going to talk about that as we get into chapters 10 and 11. But the point is the kingdom of God, the family of God, the children of the promise are made up of a true Israel that has nothing to do with our heritage, with our works, with our birthrights, our birth orders, 
how good we think we are, how bad we think we are. It has everything to do with the fact that God calls his people to himself. Verse 30, what shall we say then? I think this is the point when Paul, if you imagine Paul on his missionary journeys going from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue to synagogue to synagogue and preaching this gospel message and then at the end of it all, the Jews picking up stones, running him out of town, beating him, reviling him. I think this is the point where that happened. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? That is, the righteousness that is by faith? Paul, they didn't even have the law. They didn't have the prophets. They didn't have the Psalms. They didn't have the worship. They didn't have the sacrifices. We've had all of this for all this time, and you're telling us that the Gentiles are in when they had none of that? They hadn't pursued any of that? Yep. That's exactly right. Why? Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness but did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Jews, you need to realize, Paul's saying, that all your efforts to keep the law and all the times where you fell short and offered animals to make up for your shortcomings, that all of that's been pointing to Christ. That all of that's been pointing to the fact that man can't save himself. All of that's been pointing to the fact that what we're going to celebrate in eternity forever is the grace of God, the mercy of God, the gift of Christ's righteousness received by grace through faith, not man's own efforts, not man's own will, not man's own self-determination. Nobody's going to be in heaven saying one day, oh, I made it. I mean, think about that for a minute. What we're going to be praising in heaven forever is the grace of God. Because he has done this. The word of God has not failed. The word of God has not failed. And when Paul's readers considered that, they looked to the Jews. Remember at the beginning of chapter 9, they looked to the Jews and they go, but Paul, the word of God has not failed, and, and yet Israel by and large has rejected her Messiah and they're cut off from Christ. How do we know the word of God has not failed? You know, in our day, when, when the message is preached that God is writing a story and the story is about his glory, that God's word has never failed. There's a part of us that might want to pick up stones too. Because we look at the world and we go, but why, why this suffering? Why can't everybody just get the trophy in the end? Why all this pain? Why does God allow this to exist? 
Some of you in this room have walked through some incredibly hard things. And a lot of times what the church does is we try to give fluffy answers to the hard things in life, or we do what this worship leader said, we just put that in the too hard basket and we never talk about it. But I, though I am wrestling through this myself and there are times when I just go, God, this is so hard for me to get my head around. The place that I've come to that I think is where every Christian needs to come to is this, in order to make known the riches of his glory. And if God would kill his son, if God would sacrifice him so that I and you could be included in the promise and be forgiven, if that God, if our God would do that, then I'll trust him when I can't in the moment get my head around how this is serving to make known the riches of his glory. And I think it's why Paul and the apostles, the church throughout history, and even Jesus himself at times had to come to the place in his preaching where he would say, he who has ears to hear, let them hear. The story of God, if we're, if we're going to affirm that God is writing the story, the story is about his glory, and the word of God has not failed, we must have a category in our minds for the story of God, including both the vessels of mercy and the vessels of wrath, regardless of how you might determine they become that way. They're in the story. Right? Unless you're going to say that in the end, everybody, regardless of their faith, is going to be saved, we have to reckon with the fact that in the story of God are both vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. In, if we're going to affirm that God is writing a story about his glory and that his word has not failed, we have to reckon with the fact that the presence of sin and evil and suffering remains in this life. And so we've either got a hands-off God or we've got a hands-on God who's working all things together for good. And even more importantly, we, we must, if we're going to, for when the Bible talks about the joy of our salvation... How many of you are happy about your salvation? <laughs> Don't you just want to run around the room? When you start to think about this God who saved us by his grace through faith, that Jesus would live a sinless life, and by his grace, by his call, I get credit for his life. And I'm called a child of God. What? I think it's why Paul said, you know, <laughs> the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It doesn't make sense. That's foolishness. Every other world religion wants to tell you how to earn it. Every other one. 
And yet the gospel of Jesus Christ says, you come as you are, and I'll make you my son. I'll make you my daughter. I'll give you the inheritance of my kingdom by my grace. None of this makes sense. None of that makes sense. Until we get in order to make known the riches of his glory. Any way you slice it. Let me, let me just address an elephant, okay? People ask me all the time, Bradley, are you a Calvinist? Or are you an Arminian? And if you don't know what those words mean, good for you. I'm glad, seriously. And you know what my answer is back? I'm a sovereignist. I don't like labels like that. We could sit down and we could talk about the writings of John Calvin. We could talk about Arminian doctrine and we could debate and we could look and we could nuance and we could analyze. We can put it under microscopes and we can come to conclusions and try to make our finite arguments as best we can. But here's what I know the Bible teaches. God is sovereign and God is good. And for the praise of his glory... For the praise of his glory, he intends a world. He intends a world where his people will say, blessed be the name of our God. When there was no way, he made a way. Blessed be the name of our God. Because when I couldn't save myself, when I was dead in my trespasses and sins, when my heart was hard towards him, by his mercy, he made me alive in Christ Jesus, and he took out my heart of stone, and he put in a heart of flesh. He transformed me from being a person like Jesus talked about, that loves the darkness and hates the light. That's where we all were. We loved the darkness, and we didn't want to come into the light, lest our deeds be exposed. So let's just stay over here in the darkness and hide right there. But by his grace, Paul says it this way, the same God who said, let there be light, has shone into our darkened hearts and given us the light of life. It's all over our Bibles, people. I don't have an answer to every question. I don't even think the Bible answers every question we have about his sovereignty. It doesn't. Now we see through a glass dimly. I went to the funeral of, or, or no, on, on Monday, I was coming back from lunch. Praise team, come on. I got to, if y'all come up here, I'll stop. <laughs> I, I was coming back from lunch on Monday, and I got a phone call that Davis Gosnell, many of you know him, had suddenly passed away in his sleep in the middle of the night. It's a very sad and tragic thing for his family, but yet, I'm telling you, what a way to go. I mean, I mean he, was, he was literally just laying like this in his bedroom with his eyes closed. He looked so peaceful. And a man that loved Jesus, and as Keith and I stood in this, his little apartment with his daughter 
and his son-in-law and his sister-in-law. And we huddled and we prayed. I think it was Keith. He prayed this and it just washed over me. He said, every question for Davis has been answered. Oh. And I just, I, I heard that and I, I found in myself a refreshed, renewed longing for that day, right? Like a, it, there was an even so Lord come that bubbled up out of me. And as, as much as God intends a world where grace and mercy and redemption and forgiveness are necessary, you know what he also intends for us, his people? He doesn't intend for our lives on this side of eternity to be entirely comfortable. He's not, his intention is not for us to just walk through life and not have the longing bubbling up in our souls, your kingdom come. And every time this world leaves you wanting, every time the promises of this life leave you hanging, and the things that you banked on feel like rugs that have been jerked out from under you, and you find yourself in that place, like the one who wrote Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for you. Why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That nothing this world has to offer me compares to the hope that I have in my God. And so, even so, Lord, come. And so, when we find ourselves in the place where things are happening in our life that cause it to bubble up out of us, Lord, come. Let your kingdom come. Make this right. That's God's kindness to us. It's his kindness to us that he would lead us to himself because he's the only fountain that provides living water. He is good. Stand with me. We're going to praise your name right now. We're going to praise the name of the Lord our God. I am who I am. Yahweh. We're going to praise your name because that's, that's what the story's about. And we're going to focus with the help of the Spirit on your name. And I pray that as we do that, you would become big and everything else would become small. That we would see and taste that you are good right here in this moment. 
that the longing we have for you would increase, that it would be enhanced in worship as we remember you're writing a story. It's about your glory, and it's a good story. Praise the name of the Lord our God. Let's sing it. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.